0: Our sermon today is, once again, from Psalm 127. Let's read this passage now, and please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late. O you who eat the bread of painful labors. For in this manner, he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. These are God's words. You can take your seats. Now you may have noticed that in this week's translation, there is one change there. I think that the other translation we had is accurate, but there was, there's something in the painful labors or anxious toil that is actually connected many times in Scripture to labor and childbirth, the pains of, of childbirth. So I've left that translation today because that is going to be a big part of what we are considering today. We are continuing through what has become a sermon series through Psalm 127. I did say that this would be my last sermon in the series, but it appears that sitting under the teaching example of non, the ability to finish when I say I will has not been imparted. <laughs> so as I look at the psalm now, we will finish it next week, Lord willing. This week we will focus on verse 3, considering the giftness of children, that children are gifts, and what that means. And next we will consider the rest of the psalm with a sermon entitled Christian Kids in the Civil Sphere, a title that is sure to rock up most Christians and non-Christians alike. Now, let's remember what we have covered so far. It is necessary to do this first because, as I have said many times before, psalms are written as coherent wholes. Our verse today is not disconnected from the rest of the psalm. You can't focus in on one part of a psalm without seeing how it is connected to the whole. So with the first verse, we saw that there are two types of building and two types of guarding. There is a vain type, and there is an indestructible type. People will build something sure of fail unless Yahweh is the builder of it. We then considered the differences between how Christians and non-Christians build. Christians work hard and rest easy. Non-Christians vainly eat the bread of anxious toil. It has been easy to see how the first two verses were connected. There was like a natural link on the surface. We went from building methods to the way one builds. But to the modern reader, I think the next transition is a bit more jarring. The connection is not really there on the surface in the same way that it was in the first two verses. How you consider children might also make this transition jarring. But this transition was not jarring for Solomon. These thoughts were naturally connected in his mind, and so they should be for us. So let's read verse 3, and we'll begin to consider how it's all connected. Verse 3. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, is a reward. Behold, children are this. Solomon is saying now, in light of all that I have just said, behold, look at this, pay special attention. I'm about to define for you what children are. It is connected to building and guarding. Solomon believes this is the direction the psalm needs to take now. At this point of the psalm, the natural and proper thing to do is to tell Israel what children are and have them sing about it. Before we get to Solomon's definition of children, let's consider the question itself What are children? Think about how simple this question appears, but how the world, and I believe most of the church, would find it difficult to answer correctly or sufficiently. It is kind of like the question What is a woman? It should be easy, but because we are so clever, we have made the question difficult for ourselves. It has been made hard because the world has adopted a nonsensical evolutionary worldview. To define what a woman is consistently from evolutionary presuppositions, they have to try to define a thing that came about from nothing through a number of transitionary steps. There was once no such thing as a woman. Then a rogue bacteria discovered its feminine side for the first time. Then it grew breasts and became more and more ladylike until it became the human woman that we have today. It had to happen something like this. And since the world is still in the process of evolving, womanhood must, of necessity, therefore, still be in transition According to evolution, the trannies are right. Gender can change. Everything is fluid and unguided, and no God is expecting any gendered piety from anyone. If gender evolved to where it is now, it makes sense that all women, if we can or should even use that category, should be evaluated on some kind of spectrum of womanhood. Again, the question of what is a woman has been made hard for our culture because their worldview is built on stupid, really, really dumb presuppositions. There are clearly only two genders. Anyone with eyes and any experience of the real world can see it. It is obvious. There are no true gender transitions going on. Since this is an obvious and irrefutable fact it suggests the evolutionary explanation for origins is wrong. Why didn't we evolve into more than two genders? With all the possible mutations, you might have even expected that. Why not one gender for every letter of the alphabet and the plus symbol? Evolution does not make sense of reality as it presents itself to every man. If we build off the intellectual foundations of evolution everything we build on top of it will be in vain. Those who started celebrating Pride Month this week are gyrating on top of an ugly, poorly constructed float for a downhill street parade, not knowing that the truck below them has no brakes. It is destined to crash at some point. It should be said from the pulpit of every church in New Zealand that this declaration of Pride Month is not only wicked, but it is intellectually stupid. You want us to be proud that our nation is denying the reality of basic biological facts and celebrating sexual abominations. Our culture is calling perversion normal, and it is obviously not normal. The church will not go along with these lies. Now, back to the question of what is a child. Our culture has messed this one up in the same way that they messed up what is a woman. How many weeks gestation makes a child a child? How should we consider having more children if we are on a planet that is warming up and overpopulated? How would Mother Earth, suffering under the oppression of humankind, define children? Your presuppositions will make all the difference when defining what children are. What presuppositions do we bring to this question? What is a child? Who is the Lord of our presuppositions? God's word must give us our presuppositions. Typically, man's sinful desires are the Lord and determiner of his or her presuppositions. Reality doesn't matter. Our value systems begin with what will serve our wants, Our God is our bellies. So if we can't see anything good in having children, we define them as bad or unwanted. If we hate the work that comes from having them, we define them as burdens, breastfeeding, life-draining, freedom suckers that have you stuck in your house. Children are too loud. They are too immature and really hard to teach. They destroy my sexy body. They come into my world and I'm responsible for them forever. Their hellish torture never ends. The idea of looking after a child just makes me anxious. I want an anxious-free, child-free existence. These are all things that we can hear the world saying about children. What we hear less often, but we can see, we believe it from our actions, is that children are an unfortunate byproduct of sex. Sex is great, but children, they are a miserable side effect of something good. Sex is tied up with that in- inconvenient work of avoiding children. It is like calories that you get from eating a cream filled donut. They're so unfortunate. We all wish we could just keep eating donuts and not get fat. This being the case, the culture at large has become sexually bulimic. Like one would avoid the calories of a donut by purging themselves, spewing it up into a bowl after enjoying the taste, we purge our homes of children through abortion, through contraception, through permanently making sterile what God has made healthy and whole through vasectomy and getting your tubes tied, even by dumping our seed, where the crap gets flushed. Think about that symbolically. Even Christians do this. Christian sex can be a lot closer to the fruitless sex of those celebrating Pride Week than I think we realize. Both of them do not build. But this text tells us that having children is inseparable from how Yahweh builds a house. Yahweh builds a house through kids. Isn't that the obvious connection between the first few verses and the verse we have today? Those who are building a home and who do not receive children as a gift from God, as an inheritance, they are building in vain. So Solomon is helping the people of Israel build their houses by giving them the correct understanding of children, by defining for them what they truly are. It follows that if you get This right, and if you live by it, you will not only build better, but you will not build in vain. Solomon says, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. Children are a reward, a precious gift. Now it has to be pointed out that the word for children here is masculine. It literally means sons. So the verse should read, sons are an inheritance from Yahweh. We will get to the importance of this next week. Like I said, this week we're going to focus on the giftness of children in general. Why all children, both sons and daughters, are gifts. That is definitely here in in this text too. In the second line of verse 3, it says, in a more general way, the fruit of the womb, that is all of its fruit... Is a reward or gift. The Hebrew word can mean either reward or gift. There is a lot for us to think about and apply from this one definition of children. They are gifts. To properly wrap our heads around this gift, we have to reflect a little further on the birds and the bees, how God gives this gift. The gift of children is given through the gift. Of sex. The Bible never explicitly calls sex a gift or a reward. It says whoever finds a wife finds a good thing, but it does not say explicitly that the sex you get from that woman is a gift, as it does with children. But of course, it is a gift. It is part of why finding a wife or a husband is good. All the good things of life are gifted to us. One of the greatest of these is lovemaking. It is something to delight in and to thank God for. But sex is not the gift Solomon highlights here. It is the fruit of sex. There seems to be an emphasis today within mainstream evangelical teaching, like focus on the family and and things like that, that Christians should find satisfaction in their marriage bed. And that is definitely right and good. But I don't see in that same sphere the same concern that our marital beds be fruitful, that we must be willing to receive the gifts that God wants to give us through sex. Even in mainstream reform circles, the gift of sex seems to have a place of supremacy above the gift of children. I believe this is the case because the majority of Christians have largely conformed their definition of children to the definition used by the world. Why? Because raising children is hard for Christians and non-Christians alike. It is just hard. Was it striking to you that Solomon put the gift of sleep right alongside the gift of children without blinking or feeling silly? I must admit that I did get a chuckle from this in my preparation. Maybe Solomon left all the nighttime duties to his 700 wives. Now I'm being a bit silly, but children are definitely sleep destroyers. Anyone with kids knows that. They require a lot of nighttime toil. Remember what we learned last week. It is not that God doesn't give us the same toil as the world, we toil in the same manner. We all, Christians and non-Christian alike, lose sleep staying up with gassy and upset children. The difference is, though, we trust in God. And we are not anxious in our toil as they are. And when the baby goes down, we thank God, and we sleep well. Because child raising is hard, A seeker-sensitive church is far more likely to take that burden off you than to place on you a difficult God-given responsibility. And fruitfulness is one of those things. So they leave that counsel of God's word out of their pulpits. Family size, methods of raising children, all those things are left up to personal choice entirely. They might know that we ought to call them an inheritance from Yahweh, That's plainly in the Bible, but living your life as though they are a reward, that is another thing. Reward means something. Gift means something. And if God wants to give you a gift, you shouldn't turn your back so that you can't receive it. God sees you turning your back. Christians avoid Yahweh's reward just as much as the world does. Our birth rates are pretty much the same as the pagans. Children are a nice-to-have, not an inheritance. God designed sex to bring about children, and yet we make it our responsibility to avoid what would naturally occur in sex. In other words, we are just as sexually bulimic as the world, but we baptize our bulimia with extra-biblical justifications. One essential thing that we need to grasp from our text today is the word inheritance. That word is hugely important for understanding this whole psalm, and we will consider it in depth soon. But first I want us to consider that this inheritance is from Yahweh. Yahweh is the giver of children. He is sovereign over the womb, the giver and taker of life. We can think that children come about merely from our own choices. And of course, they do on one level. But at the most ultimate, foundational level, this is what Solomon says, children are from Yahweh. This is how every married couple with fertile bodies should understand baby-making conceptually. Yahweh gives children to our house, building it up, building up an inheritance through sex. Let me quote Calvin now once again, and I'm going to quote him extensively here because this section of his commentary is very helpful. Quote, Nothing seems more natural than for men to be produced of men. The majority of mankind dream that after God had once ordained this at the beginning, children were thenceforth begotten solely by a secret instinct of nature, God ceasing to interfere in the matter. And even those who are endued with some sense of piety, although they may not deny that he is the father and creator of the human race, yet do not acknowledge that his providential care descends to this particular case, but rather think that men are created by a universal motion. With the view of correcting this preposterous error, Solomon calls children the heritage of God and the fruit of the womb his gift. For the Hebrew word sakar, I think that's how you pronounce it, translated reward, signifies whatever benefits God bestows upon men, as is plainly manifested from other passages of Scripture. The meaning then is that children are not the fruit of chance, but that God, as it seems good to him, distributes to every man his share of them. Moreover, as the prophet repeats the same thing twice, heritage and rewarded to be understood as equivalent, for both these terms are set in opposition to fortune, or the strength of men. The stronger a man is, he seems so much the better fitted for procreation. Solomon declares, on the contrary, that those become fathers to whom God vouchsafes that honour. Amen. Calvin is right. We have thought about and continue to think about having children far too mechanically. God blesses the marriage bed with children. The marriage bed does not bless us with children. Our fertility is a tool in God's hands. We can see around the world today a number of tragic consequences from men taking birth control out of the hands of God refusing his gifts. One that we can tragically see is women prolonging having children and the the market of IVF coming up. I think it's 40 million babies frozen in America at the moment and it's because of taking fertility into our hands. We have been having childless sex for generations now and we are about to inherit the whirlwind. Watch the documentary Birth Gap sometime. It was made by non-Christians, but it shows that because of our unwillingness to be fruitful, to obey God, we are heading for a cliff. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is destruction. The way of man leads to the destruction of his inheritance, the squandering of his reward, a home built in vain. Homes that are built with man's wisdom look like a man sitting in a rest home, away from the beautiful house he built, alongside other lonely people with no family to look after them. It is having accumulated a whole lot of awesome stuff, but not having the joy of passing it on to someone you love and want to succeed in life after you have gone. Intentionally not having children is quite literally. The death of your heritage. It is incredibly sad. These people, in their final days, with their very own eyes, see that they built in vain. It has to be acknowledged that, for reasons unknown to us, some do not have a choice when it comes to having children. God takes that choice away. Not being able to pass on an inheritance to your own children is one reason why barrenness is so sad. But we know that in every tough situation, especially ones that God brings about, he can bring comfort and restoration. And there are other ways of passing on an inheritance that will serve another family, the family of God, the everlasting kingdom, after you are gone. The main point that I need to make today, though, from this text is that having an inheritance to give and having someone to give it to is one of the greatest blessings in life. It can give a man a unique kind of satisfaction on his deathbed. And Yahweh is the one who gives him that pleasure through the children that he gave him through his life. Children are gifts from God. And understanding the nature of these gifts is one of the key things we need if we are going to joyfully embrace them. Solomon tells us that the nature of the gift is in the words inheritance and reward. He gives a specific example of how a man is rewarded in his life through his sons, and that's what we're going to get into next week. But we can make many broader applications from this principle too. It is right to spread this truth out to the corners. If children are an inheritance, what does that mean? Typically, we wouldn't think of children as an inheritance. I don't think the world would. When you think of an inheritance, you would typically think of houses and money and possessions that you would get from a loved one when they pass thinking about how children differ from other forms of inheritance is actually a great way of understanding why Solomon places them at the peak of a man's blessings. As you all know, Solomon wrote other books of the Bible. One of those was Ecclesiastes. In that book, he argued that everything a man does under the sun is vain. Solomon likes this word, vain. He explains that everything a man or woman does in this life is full of harsh toil. Everything you build is eventually broken down or given to someone else. Life is short and you will eventually fade out of existence and bring nothing of your work with you. What he says in that book is the brutal truth. Once you leave this place, there will be another cycle of humans that will take your stuff and your place in the world. In many ways, it is a book about inheritance. Solomon brings these reflections into this psalm now, but shows where an everlasting inheritance is to be found, one that is not in vain. Houses will fall, cities will fall, but your children they carry on your name. In that way they are a living inheritance. They inherit your beliefs, and they pass them on to the next generation. They will inherit your houses, and they will maintain them and use them for good. They will build upon what you built. In a very real sense, you will live on through your children. Everything you do will not be in vain if God blesses you with faithful children to carry on your work. As we considered before, if you have no children... If there is no one to pass everything that you've accumulated onto, all your work becomes vain. Another name, another man's children, will pick up your stuff and reap the rewards of your labor. This is what Solomon also taught his son in the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of sinners is stored up for the righteous. This brings extra meaning to that for me. This is what Calvin has to say about the nature of this inheritance of children. Quote, It is no small gift of God for a man to be renewed in his posterity. For God then gives him new strength that he who otherwise would straightaway decay may begin, as it were, to live a second time. Amazing. Amazing. It is no small gift to be given children to carry on after you. This is the way that God made the world and the way he intends to prosper his people in particular by giving them faithful houses and children in those houses that are not only a blessing in this life, but go on to be blessings well after you are gone. They carry on your name, your house, your legacy through future generations. I want to end by acknowledging some of the same things I did last week. The instruction of God's word is simple, but it is hard. I, a man, ventured into the minefield of female fertility today, and without having experienced anything of the hardships connected to carrying a child or giving birth, I spoke with authority on the subject. Not having experienced The difficulty of these things, it was my responsibility to give the plain teaching of this passage. Both men, Christian men and women, should value children as Solomon called us to. But stating the obvious, only women can carry and bring them to term. This is a unique and difficult calling for women. It carries with it a unique element of the curse even. It will bring you pain and much suffering acknowledging this it will be helpful for you to know that in that suffering this is exactly what your lord has called you to 1st timothy 2:15 says that the woman will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint This passage teaches that under normal circumstances, childbearing is inseparable from a woman's salvation. The bearing of children is your unique cross to bear. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Bearing and raising children is death by living. The women of this world hate childbearing because they know that it requires them to die to themselves. But that is what we are called to. And it is through this dying that we live. We want to live inside the will of God at all times. Since he wants us to lay down our lives we do not cling to them. We trust in his good purposes that are in dying. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. A woman is a pitcher of wheat. Every time she brings about a child into the world, she is coming very close to death. There's a reason why so many women die in childbirth. It's because there's a dying that they go through. And in the same way that wheat must die to produce fruit, a woman must die. This is a hard saying. God is calling you to die for the sake of fruitfulness, to give your bodies And all that you have for the next generation and the extension of his kingdom. You are called to no less than this. Men, understand that this is the sacrifice our wives are making. They are laying down their lives for your inheritance. For the extension of your name. Love them and treasure their deteriorating bodies. See the unfading beauty of a woman who fears the Lord. Praise her for that imperishable beauty. Let her know that you see it. Verbalize your approval of her and regularly give thanks. As far as it depends on you, shield her from all that could cause her to be anxious around raising kids. Do hard things and lay down your life for her sake. Support her financially and joyfully take up extra work around the house. All of these things are necessary for building a godly house. Yahweh builds a house through a husband and a wife, laying down their lives for different things. Under one roof, working hard together and resting easy together for the common cause of building up your home together. I've told some of you this story before, but I think it is worth repeating to get an important principle across. When Chase was a newborn, I remember waking up in the wee hours of the morning to see Mal struggling to feed him. She was suffering with cracking and soreness around the feeding area, and she was just exhausted. At that time, God prompted me to say, God would have you nowhere else right now, Mal to take comfort that you are in the center of God's will right where you are. And we have said that to each other many times since. For the Christian, there is nothing better than to know that you are in the center of God's will. If you as a mother are laying down your life for your children, trapped on a feeding chair, or bouncing your baby around the room for hours trying to settle them down, know that there you are in the center of God's will. Remember that. There is nowhere else that God would call you to be. It is hard while you are going through it, but you can take pleasure in the unseen reality of God looking down on you with approval. I know this week has been hard for some of you, but I hope that this word from God encourages you to press on. There is no easy way to have a baby. It requires dying. It is supposed to be hard. You will get more sleep as they grow, but then you just have new difficulties. Toddler difficulties. Then boisterous kid difficulties. Then I'm guessing know-it-all teenager difficulties. Hey, Rowan. (laughs) And then old people, grandparent issues hit. You have to take up a new cross each day. And with each new cross, we persevere with God's help through it. And through it, he strengthens us for the next difficulty. Remember that the current difficulty that you are experiencing is a necessary step on the path to greater strength and maturity. James says in his epistle, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, sleepless nights with your baby. Not knowing what they need. Getting up and giving your son yet another smack. Fixing up the ding in in your lunar driver's door. Count it all joy in all of these trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." We do not work in vain as the pagans do. We seek first the kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are seeking heavenly treasures that moth and rust will not destroy, an everlasting inheritance. And when we do this, when we seek to do the Lord's will, he has promised to provide our every need. This is how the converted man or woman can keep from worrying in his toil And find sleep at night. He sees through the eyes of faith the easy yoke of our Lord. He taught us this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying that knowing full well we have very hard work to do. The most common thing Mel hears when going out is this. you have your hands full? Or you've got your work cut out? The world does not understand a woman who is taking up an easy yoke because they do not have eyes to see it. They only see anxious toil and godly self-sacrifice. As a final encouragement, don't be afraid to explain your self-sacrifice to the world. They need to understand it. Give God the glory by explaining how God has given you an easy yoke despite the appearance of hard work. Explain the joy of self-denial and what it is like to know God is pleased with you. Tell of how the joy of the Lord is your strength. This may not be where you are at right now, So don't force it if it is not true. But this is where we should all be aiming as believers. I want us to be strengthened by God through his word and through this church and through the encouragement of believers. And then we can publicly glorify God for the strength that he displays in us. So now let's ask God that he would make us into that kind of people for his glory. Let's pray.